Good morning. Good to see everybody on this beautiful day. We have had a wonderful weekend, haven't we? Uh, we had a um, wonderful service yesterday, memorial service. Um, and, uh, and then in the afternoon, we had a wonderful um, opportunity to minister to people in the community uh, through the art stroll. We had an outreach uh, down at the depot. If you drove through Canal at all last uh, yesterday, you probably noticed a whole bunch of tents that were erected. And uh, people were moving back and forth from Stradley Park all the way down to the depot. And we set up a paint wall for kids to paint. So how many of you were there yesterday for it? I see, yeah. Did you guys have fun? Good. Well, it was a wonderful time, beautiful weather, great chance uh, to minister to other people and to fellowship together. If you're just joining us here this morning, we are concluding a series called Unquestioned Answers. And uh, it's been exciting to spend these last several weeks looking at various cliches that we often use without really thinking deeply about them. And this morning, we're going to conclude with one more. And uh, if you're interested in, in hearing more, you can pick up one of the books. Uh, you can order that online. You can actually see some video clips. Uh, there's other resources that are available at Unquestioned Answers. I think it's .com or .org. So let's pray before we get started. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to worship you. And um, Lord, I pray that you would indeed speak through me this morning. Lord, we want to hear from your word, and we want to take the truths that are contained in this book, and Lord, we want to apply it to our lives so that we might be more like you. And uh, Father, we pray that you would use us in the lives of those that are around us as you work in us and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you're judging me. Hey, you're not supposed to judge. Jesus said, do not judge, lest you be judged. Have you ever heard that before? You ever heard that come, something like that come out of somebody else's mouth? Ah, so it came out of your mouth. Well, the truth is, we hear people say things like that all the time, and we may even have said that sometime in the past. Matthew 7, 1, where those phrases come from, may have been one of the, the most quoted Bible verses of all time a couple of decades ago, but I'm not so sure it is anymore. See, the verse was being used in such a way as to keep people on the defensive. That when they were being approached by somebody who was drawing attention to something in their life that was out of whack, was sin, um, they would use that to, def to defend themselves, to deflect it back. I mean, you could be like the worst sinner in the world, but at least I'm not being judgmental like you. And that was their attitude. And 
today, you don't hear it as much. You hear something similar, but I, I think that even today, because we live in a culture where anything goes, um, we feel that even if somebody's actions are wrong, um, we just avoid it. We just don't talk about it for fear of being shamed on social media or even having a lawsuit brought against us. So today, the most offensive thing in our culture is not doing something wrong. It's not sin. It's calling something wrong and sinful. That's the one no-no we can't do. So fewer and fewer people are willing to judge the actions of others. The pressure is enormous. So today, instead of hearing, who are you to judge, we are hearing things like this. Who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? It's not my place to judge. Do you see what's happening? We're we're making the argument for them now. More and more Christians think that if people find biblical truth offensive, then it's wrong for us to tell them. That's kind of weird. It's like the world has been turned upside down. And in his book, Unquestioned Answers, Jeff Myers refers to a summit ministries in Barna Group poll that found that church-going Christians, now catch this, especially if you're in this demographic, that church-going Christians under the age of 45 were four times as likely as those over 45 to strongly believe that if your beliefs offend someone or hurt their feelings, it's wrong. So what they're really saying is truth no longer matters. What matters is how people feel. And if they feel offended by the truth of God's word, then it's wrong for us to proclaim it. And if we believe that it's wrong to proclaim it, how long will it take before we believe that it's not worth proclaiming? How long before we cease to believe it ourselves? Now, let's lay our cards out on the table, I realize that nobody likes conflict. At least most people don't like conflict. Uh, We don't like the prospect of offending somebody. We don't enjoy the prospect of being labeled a Bible thumper or or being judgmental. And so we we just don't want to go there. We tend to avoid having difficult conversations or making judgments at all. And I think that's one of the reasons why we retreat to the cliche, it's not my place to judge. I don't want to get dragged into this. I don't want to have to get into an argument. I don't want to get on your bad side. I don't want you mad at me or whatever it might be. But I suggest to you that rather than refraining from making judgments, we simply ought to judge rightly. Judge rightly. Now, there is a difference between making uh, judgments and being judgmental. Uh, and I want to unpack this here for you because this is an important distinction that we need to make if we're going to understand what the Scripture says about judging. 
Because if you, if you look at Matthew 7, 1 and a few other verses, you, you might conclude that we shouldn't judge. I mean, Jesus said, do not judge, right? So we need to make a distinction between making judgments and being judgmental. Now, we make judgments all the time, right? Every day of our lives, we make judgments. Judgments are needed when we're considering to, uh, to, to buy a house or to buy a car, making a big move, taking a new job, and, and especially when assessing danger. We have to make judgments. We make judgments on who our friends will be, who we will marry, if you're single, you need good judgment to know whether or not you ought to be dating that gal or that guy. To make a decision is to make a judgment about someone or something or some particular course of action. That's just a natural part of life. And if we never made judgments, I mean, think about this. If we never made judgments, then there'd be no need for government. There, we'd have no judicial system. We would have uh, no uh, law enforcement, no standards for education, no morality, or even civility. You couldn't even parent your own kids. People would end up doing whatever they wanted without any consequences. So common sense tells us that when Jesus said, do not judge, he didn't mean that we are not to make judgments. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at the first five verses here. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus very clearly here was not saying we have no right to make moral judgments about behavior and no right to hold people accountable. But he is saying that we ought to judge rightly. We ought to judge justly. Jesus was here actually rebuking the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who loved to tell people what to do and then they did just the opposite. They were quick to see the sins of others, but they were blind to the sin in their own life. And, and notice when Jesus said, pull the log out of your own eye. Notice he, he, he follows it up with, so that you will be able to see clearly in order to help your brother. So yeah, He's allowing for judgments to be made. He just wants to make sure that we're in the best possible position to be able to make them. We should never judge hypocritically or unrighteously. And the truth is, and we need to own this, that it's much easier for us 
to point out sin in other people's lives than it is in our own. Most of us, and I'll speak for myself, I have, I have blind spots, and I just don't see it, and I need other people in my life to help me see it. We shouldn't fixate on the sawdust in somebody else's eye when we've got a beam sticking out of our own. That's making judgments, moral judgments. Judgmentalism is different. And I'm going to share a story with you. You, you may have heard it before. It's, it's somewhat humorous, um, but it's, it's also uh, sad. It's entitled um, The Cookie Thief. A woman was waiting at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shop, found a bag of cookies, and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that a man beside her, as bold as he could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag in between, which she tried to ignore in order to avoid a scene. She read, munched cookies, watched the clock, and the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking, if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he'd do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. And he offered half to her. And he ate the other half. She snatched it from him and thought, oh, brother, this guy's got some nerve. He's so rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings, headed for the gate, and refusing to look back at the thieving ingrate, she boarded the plane, sank in her seat, then sought her book, which was almost complete. And as she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise. There was her bag of cookies right in front of her eyes. If mine are here, she moaned with despair. Then the others were his, and he tried to share them with me. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate and thief. Wow. I think that story is very telling and very revealing. You see, to be judgmental means that we're quick to point the finger at other people. We make judgments without understanding the situation properly. And judgmental people tend to assume the worst of other people. I mean, I have thought about this for a great number of years now, and I am convinced that one of the reasons why we think evil of other people is because we're very cognizant of the evil in our own heart. We know what we're like, and we just assume other people are like us. A judgmental person is a professional fault finder. 
They point out sin in other people's lives in order to feel superior. And sometimes they do it in a very hurtful way. It is really self-righteousness on full display. Sometimes people judge others in anger and in hatred. And we see this all the time now, don't we, on the news? We, we see it, especially amongst our politicians. You disagree with someone, you disparage them. You don't talk about the issues, you go after the person, and you call them names, and you tell everyone how, how terrible they are. Well, as Christians, there is no excuse for us to demean or demonize other people. God has called us to love our neighbor. We're called to treat others with respect, to treat others the way that we would want to be treated. Now, I mentioned already that most people don't like to make moral judgments, to bring up things, to point out sin in other people's lives because we don't like conflict. We don't want to alienate friends or be labeled judgmental. Most of the time, we just want to maintain the status quo. Don't rock the boat. It's not my place to judge. Might also be their attempt to not take a position or to not think about it. It's kind of like blissful ignorance. If I don't have to think about it, I don't have to wrestle with it, I'm, I'm good. Don't, don't make me think about it. Don't make me wrestle with Scripture. There are, suppose, I suppose, many reasons why people like to say it's not my play, place to judge. But let me give you three that maybe you haven't thought about. Um, and these three are found uh, in, the, in this um, chapter on it's not my place to judge in uh, unquestioned answers. The first is that some people view biblical truth as mere opinion. Can we back up the slide to the right place? Some people view biblical truth as mere opinion. It is not my place to judge may mask the belief that we think it's just a matter of opinion. Some people don't have a high view of Scripture. Some people believe that the Bible isn't really the Word of God. Some people believe it contains the Word of God, but then it's up to us to kind of figure out which parts are and which parts aren't. They don't have a firm conviction that the Bible is truly the Word of God. Rather, they see it as the words of men. They don't see God's Word as His inerrant, without error, infallible, always trustworthy, revelation to us that is the final authority in life. It judges us. We don't judge it. But this is precisely the problem that many churches are facing now. This is why many churches, in many churches now, you see uh, gay marriage. You see the ordination of women and homosexuals and the doctrine of hell no longer being taught. Culture has become the final authority. We have become the final authority. We have become our own God. We call the shots. 
God's word is twisted to make it say what we want it to say so that we can at least appear Christian and feel like we're right with God when we're not. Regardless of the reason why a person may say it's not my place to judge or who am I to to judge, the minute you do that, you have reduced absolute truth on, on, on issues that the scripture has spoken to, to subjective opinion. You, there, there, there's no more absolute truth. It's just a matter of what's true for you. And that may be different from one person to another. It becomes a subjective experience rather than a reflection of objective truth. Now, to kind of illustrate, both truth and opinion, they're not the same thing. Claiming that the Cleveland Indians are a baseball team is not the same thing as saying Eric Kitchen is a great fisherman, okay? The, the first is a fact. The second is an opinion that only he holds. When someone says that universal moral statements are truths, are only opinions, what they're saying is that there is no absolute truth. And even if there is, no one could know it. But that in itself is an absolute truth. If the absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth, then you just contradicted yourself. Or maybe you can think about it this way. If it, it is absolutely true that you cannot know if absolute truth exists, you, you see why the argument is self-defeating? Another reason why we may tend to say this is that some people wrongly and foolishly believe that God doesn't judge so neither should we. Turn over to John chapter 8. Verse 3. says, the scribes and the Pharisees, that by the way, this is, this is like the quintessential text that people will often refer to to demonstrate that God doesn't judge. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. If we stop there, we might conclude that Jesus didn't judge her. And so neither should we judge other people. But we can't stop there. Continue reading with me in verse 8. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, 
They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, Jesus did pass judgment in this passage. He declared both the woman and those who were about to stone her to death as sinners. He who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all dropped their stones. So he's pointing out that they were sinners too. And then he tells the woman, go and sin no more. And so Jesus is making a judgment here. He, can, he sees into their hearts. He understands the depth of their sin. But he, he doesn't judge just for the sake of judging. He extends grace, especially here to the woman. And if you really think that God doesn't judge, well then, explain that to Adam and Eve. Explain it to the devil for that part. Explain it to the people of Noah's day. Explain it to the people of Israel and to all those who are in hell. The psalmist writes in chapter 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge. A God who feels indignation every day. And I know we often, and, and the world especially, loves to run to, to a God of love. We like to think that the God of the New Testament is different than the God of the Old Testament. But God doesn't change. He doesn't change. He's the same. And righteousness and justice is a part of who he is. And what is most amazing when you think about it is it's precisely because of God's righteousness. It's precisely because he is a righteous judge that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Because sin had to be dealt with. Sinners needed to be punished. God's justice demands it. Scripture says that he will by no means clear the guilty. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God in his holiness has to deal with sin and the sinner. He couldn't just, you know, one day, you know, he wakes up, you know, I'm having a good hair day today. Everybody's forgiven. Everybody can come on in to heaven. It just wouldn't work. And so God's justice demanded payment for our sin. And either we had to pay that penalty or somebody had to pay it for us. And the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
And he gave his only son so that he would take the sins of the world upon himself, that he would bear the brunt of God's wrath. He would take the punishment that we deserve for our sins upon himself so that we could be forgiven. So on one hand, it's a terrible thing to fall in the hands of an angry God, of a just God, of a holy God. But I am so glad that he is just. In fact, John tells us in his first epistle that if we confess our sins, God is what? Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Doesn't say that he's loving and merciful and will do it. He's faithful and just because justice was melted, dealt out at the cross. Our sins were paid for by the Son of God. Third reason that sometimes we can fall back on that cliche is that some people believe that we have to be perfect before we can judge others, before we're qualified to make moral judgments. They, they have this idea that we have to be pure and holy completely before we can say anything about anything. Because we're, we're, we too are sinners. We too fall short. We're not perfect. And, and we make mistakes, so, so we shouldn't make any moral judgments at all. Well, that's not what Scripture teaches You've probably heard people say this too. Those, those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, right? I mean, those are the kinds of things that are said to keep us at bay. But the argument is easily dismissed when, when, when someone says, you can't judge until you're perfect. Is that not a judgment? Are you not making a judgment that we shouldn't judge until we're perfect? Well, unless they're perfect themselves, they've just contradicted themselves. Now, we've already seen that Jesus did not say we're never to judge, only that we shouldn't judge hypocritically or unrighteously. I don't think you can get a clearer statement of that than in John chapter 7, verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Why don't people quote that? Why do they always go to Matthew 7, 1? Jesus says, judge with righteous judgment. Again, we see that Jesus is not saying don't judge. Rather, we're not to judge by mere appearances or to judge superficially. We're to judge rightly. In Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul mirrors the words of Jesus and warns Christians to avoid hypocrisy in their judgment. Listen, Romans 12, uh, 2, 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? You see it here? 
Again, the emphasis is on not judging hypocritically, but righteously. Well, some people say, well, this kind of proves my point. We can't make judgments until we're perfect. But that's not what Paul is saying here. The church in Corinth, for example, was far, far from a perfect church. Yet Paul faults them for not judging someone who they ought to have judged in the church. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would have to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Not to even eat with such a one. And by the way, that's not an exhaustive list. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Then in chapter 6, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life. I mean, I mean that's mind-blowing. And one day, we're going to judge the world. We're going to judge angels. How much more so matters pertaining to this life? It's, it seems clear to me that the saying, it's not my place to judge, is really misguided. Because it is. It is our place to judge. But we must do it righteously. So what are we to do? How do we speak the truth into people's lives and engage them with the gospel? How do we communicate truth to others without being judgmental? I'm going to give you a few headers from Meyer's book, and I'm going to try to fill in some of the, the gaps. These are good suggestions. They're not the only ones. I, I trust that you will come up with more. But I think the first thing I would say is that we need to trust God. We need to trust God in so many ways. Don't be afraid to engage others in conversation. After all, the truth is on our side. We know the truth, and we can stand on it. Don't put pressure on yourself to win the person to Christ or even win the argument. That, that's not your, your job. Your job is to be a witness. 
a faithful witness. Be available. Be willing. Be faithful, but trust God for the results. And I would add to that, be prepared to be in it for the long haul. Because I tell you, the, the best conversations don't happen in five minutes. They will happen over a period of time. One thing that I like to do, especially with people who don't know Christ, is um, when I'm talking with them, I, 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 I like to give them just enough so that they're kind of hanging on the edge of the seat waiting for more. And then I'll say, hey, man, it's been great getting together with you. we got to do this again sometime. Just because I want them to want to get back together again. I want them to be able to, hey, can, can we get back together? And talk? I'd like to hear more uh, about that. So be in it for the long haul. Second thing I would say is be humble. Humility demonstrates that you're not perfect. You don't have to have all the answers, so don't try. Be real. Admit when you don't know something. They will appreciate that. And without diminishing the truth, be honest about your own struggles. You know, when you're talking to somebody about a particular issue, maybe that's an issue you've struggled with. Let them know that. Let them know you still don't have it all figured out. But, You can say something like this. I don't have all the answers, but here's what I know to be true. And then you can share it with them. Third thing is ask thoughtful questions. Asking thoughtful questions. And by the way, this is something I talked about just a few weeks ago. How important asking questions are. But asking thoughtful and genuine questions enables us to get to know people better. It invites them to share with us a, 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 their story. And by doing so, we, we learn their history. We learn their interests, their, their beliefs, their, their values. We learn what's important to them. And it demonstrates that we are interested in them and it makes it easier for them to open up themselves to us. I think the other thing that it does is with that information, it makes it easier for us to tailor the conversation to their needs rather than making assumptions about them. And here are some questions that you can use in the process. Um, What do you mean by that? Yeah, that's very important because a lot of times we talk right past each other. We need to understand what they're talking about. Define key terms so that you both understand what each other means. You could ask, how do you know that to be true? A claim isn't true just because someone believes it to be. I can claim that I'm the best looking man in the world, but that doesn't make it true. Unfortunately, if our beliefs are worth holding, they need to correspond to reality, don't they? They, they have to be legitimate. There have to, has to be solid reasons for them. Ask people, why do you believe in that? How do you know that to be true? If, for example, if someone says to you, no one can really know the truth. Now that 
You hear that a lot. I've heard that. No, no one can really know the truth. Well, you could ask, is that a true statement? When you say that no one can know the truth, aren't you making a truth claim that no one can know the truth? See, people say things all the time that, that reveal that they have a porous worldview. And by asking good questions, we can help them see it. And once they see it, they're more inclined to listen to what we have to say. Another question we can ask is, can you help me understand what you mean by that? For instance, if someone says, all the church wants is my money. Well, what led you to that conclusion? Did you have a bad experience in a church? Or if someone says, the church is full of judgmental hypocrites, you could ask, can you help me understand why you feel that way? See, people believe things for a reason. It, It just doesn't come out of thin air. Find out the why behind the what. Another question would be is, and this is a good one, I, let, I fall back on this a lot. Can I have some time to think about it? See, most of us, um, when we're under pressure to give an answer, to give a response, um, we, we find it difficult to think quickly on our feet. And again, it's okay to say, I don't know. But to add to it, say, hey, could, could, I, could I have some time to think about this? Or can I have some time to research this and then I can get back to you? Because... That's great because now you can go away, there's no pressure, you can pray, you can research, you can find those Bible verses, you can come up with an answer, and then you can set up another time to get together and share what you have found. And this ties closely into another thing that we can do, and that is listen. We've talked about this too. Listening, believe it or not, is one of the most persuasive things that you can do. It communicates genuine interest and love, and it can start with a simple question like, or or a statement like, tell me more. I'd love to hear more. Would you mind sharing with me this? You invite them to speak, and then you listen attentively. And then finally, get to the root Get to the root. As the saying goes, what it's about is rarely what it's about. There's often a lot more below the surface than we can see, and we need to strive to understand what it is that they're really objecting to. So why do we do all this? Why spend time learning to communicate, how to avoid these trite cliches and answer more comprehensively, more fully? It's very simple. We're called to love our neighbor. And we're called to make disciples. And we need to find out how to do it as effectively as we can It is my hope and prayer that we will all desire to grow in our ability to engage people with the gospel and to give them reasons for the hope that we possess. My hope is that we're going to be willing to step out of our comfort zone. Yesterday was fun. 
getting a chance to meet people and talk with people. We didn't get into any really in-depth conversations about spiritual things, but we certainly wanted to leave a positive taste in people's mouths. Because if people are out there, and I know they are, that think that the church is full of judgmental hypocrites and everything else, isn't it refreshing to be able to give them something that they all looked at and go, wow, this is really neat. It's very cool that you did this. This is wonderful. Glad you did this for our kids and this, that, and the other thing. And who knows? Maybe somebody will show up one day here or at some other church because they had a good experience there. We need to be willing to engage people in conversation, not be afraid of hard conversations, again, because the truth is on our side. What we need, however, is compassion. Compassion for those who are trapped in sin. But let me close by also saying this. We also need to speak truth in love to one another within this church. We are our brother's keeper. We need to love one another enough to come alongside them and sometimes share things that they need to hear that they don't want to hear. I can tell you a lot of stories in my life where I've had people come to me to tell me things that I really didn't want to hear, but I needed to hear. And I imagine until the day the Lord takes me home, I'm still going to be needing to hear things because I am a work in progress. I don't want to be defensive when people share things with me that will help me be a better Christian, a better husband, a better father, a better friend, a better pastor. That's my desire and my hope. And I would hope that people would love me enough to tell me truth, to challenge me in my blind spots so that I can be more like Jesus. So rather than refraining from making moral judgments. Let's judge rightly. Let's judge justly. Let's speak the truth in love and trust God to work in us and through us for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to worship you, to hear from your word. Lord, we want the disposition of Jesus. We want that wonderful balance of speaking truth and yet in such a way uh, that we don't get in the way, that we would not be judgmental, but that we would be willing to make righteous judgments and to do so in love, in the hopes that those that we uh, speak with might see the error of their ways and course correct. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, you have promised that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, do this work here at New Life. Make us into the people you've called us to be and use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.